You're listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We will be joined by cancer experts to discuss blood cancer diagnosis, treatment, side effects management, and the importance of clinical trials. They will share their experience in treating patients and discuss strategies for optimal patient care. Let's get the conversation started. Welcome to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. I'm Dr. Ken Miller. I'm a medical oncologist at the University of Maryland, Greenbaum Comprehensive Cancer Center, and I'm also a volunteer for LLS. I want to thank all of you for joining us on this episode. Today we'll be joined by Dr. Alice Mims, who is a member and director of the Leukemia Clinical Research Program and also an assistant professor in the Division of Hematology at The Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center in Columbus. Alice, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Ken. I'm really excited to be part of this program. So here's for disclosure, just to share with you and the listeners as well. My wife, Joan, had uh, AML about 19 years ago, and, uh, and thankfully as well. So we as a family have a lot to be thankful for, for all the doctors who treat leukemia, and just so excited to see all the progress recently. So I want to ask you about that. In the, um, Alice, in the 1970s, we were using 7 and 3 to treat acute leukemia. I, I wasn't practicing then, but we as oncologists. What happened after that? And I guess I want to, maybe I'll say what happened in general? What, why has this been such a difficult disease to make progress? That's a great question. You know, really AML, though we call it one disease, it's really a multitude of diseases. As we've learned more about the disease through genetic sequencing, through cytogenetics, we know that really there are really thousands of AMLs and figuring out how to best approach and treat an individual's case is very different. And so it's not a one-size-fits-all mentality anymore. And, you know, I think that's a good thing. We use seven and three for you know 30 plus years and now we have a lot of new options that have, uh, are coming forward with being able to target some of these mutations that we're, we found. So let me ask you more about that. Probably one of the biggest discoveries and this is now a number of years ago was in CML. The driver for CML being uh, the BCR able gene and we have some understanding of how that actually promotes the disease. What have been some of the exciting findings in AML about on on a molecular basis that you and others feel are driving this disease for some patients? Sure. So through sequencing effort, you know, we found now that some patients have mutations such as FLT3 mutations, which causes AMLs to be more proliferative, and there are new FLT3 inhibitors that can target Um, those. Those are found, those mutations are found in about 30% of patients. And then we also now have IDH or isocitrate dehydrogenase mutations, one and two, and they're new inhibitors that target those mutations as well. And when you have those mutations, they cause leukemia cells not to differentiate. So when you turn those mutations off with these agents, it allows the cells to go through normal maturation. And, you know, we're seeing good responses, at least in the relapsed and refractory setting. And now those are being explored in the upfront settings for patients. All right, so 30% of patients who present have a FLT3, assuming 10 or 20% have an IDH? Yeah, it's typically about um, 10 to 15% or so have an IDH mutation. 
And what are some of the other key mutations? So some of the other mutations that we focus on are um, NPM1 mutations. Typically those have a better prognostication. And then P53 or TP53 mutations are ones that patients typically don't have as good of outcomes. And so we're trying to look at new ways to approach those patients. We know that standard 7 plus 3 for P53 mutated AML doesn't work very well. There's been new data about using hypomethylating agents that we think may do a little bit better, but could do a lot better job than currently for, for that particular patient population. So the question that I've, I've wondered about, for the patients who have normal cytogenetics and you do you know, in-depth NGS profiling, do you normally find something that's a driver or could be a driver, or are there patients uh, where you, you just really don't know what, what's driving the disease? So, you know, most patients have some mutation, and when we talk about driver mutations, it's when we see varinolyl frequencies are higher, so typically at least above 20% or so. There are some patients who don't have any molecular mutations that we know of, and it may just be that we haven't found those particular mutations yet. They may not be on, you know, the panels that the patients are being tested with. So, you know, or it may be that there's something else, as you mentioned, that may be driving it besides a, a mutation or cytogenetic aberration. Sure. I mean, I guess epigenetic changes, perhaps? Yeah, but I think there's a lot of, you know, exploration into methylation and, and other epigenomic factors to see how they're contributing as well to the disease process. All right, so I want to, uh, I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll sort of make believe we're in your clinic for a, for a second. Uh, if you're seeing a 68-year-old woman who presents with uh, newly diagnosed AML, what are the things you're thinking about, you're looking at, what's the data you would want in order to start making uh, recommendations? That's a great question. You know, I was just talking with someone about how, you know, when patients come in, a lot of time, or in the past, we used to think that they needed to be started on treatment right away. You know, this was an emergency. You didn't let the sun set before getting chemotherapy started. And what we're learning is that because all patients are not going to respond the same, you know, have the same outcomes, it's important to get all the important pieces of the puzzle for that individual patient before moving forward. And so what I mean by that is if it's possible and their disease is overall stable, you know, if you can look at cytogenetics, molecular data, um, wait for those to return, but also the things that are important, you know, are comorbidities of the patient. So what other disease processes do they have, other medications that they're on? And the most important is kind of what are the patient's goals? And so that's um, something that we really try to focus on because, you know, there are different ways to approach AML. Some are going to be more curative intent if they're candidates for that. Some are going to be more, um, you know, palliation and improve quality of life. And so it's really important to know up front what's important to the patient so you really drive your decision making together. Just thinking about it as a non-leukemia doctor, but also just as a general oncologist, that these are challenging conversations. What do you share with patients about prognosis when you meet them? How do you present the information? 
Well, you know, when I first meet a patient, I may not know all of the statistics because I may not have all of the data back as far as the cytogenetics and molecular findings. And and, and it also can be patient preference. Some patients are very number driven and they want to really know kind of what percentage of chance can I get to a remission with this therapy versus another. While some patients, that's a little bit more frightening to hear those numbers. And so they would rather talk about expectations because just in a general sense. And so I think you really have to work to get to know your patient and, and kind of ask them as you go along because you don't want to overwhelm someone who's already gotten a devastating diagnosis, you know, when you're first meeting them. And then you can maybe talk to things as you go along um, further and getting the information and figuring out the treatment course. Often do patients say, just in your experience, my goal of care is I'd like to be able to live a year or two comfortably, as opposed to saying, you know, I, I want to be cured. Well, I think you have a, really a mix of that, you know, and I think it depends on, you know, what patients have been through. We have, you know, patients who have come in and have a therapy-related AML from a prior malignancy and chemotherapy exposure or radiation. And so when they've already had an experience with treatment, they may say what's important to me more is my quality of life. You know, when they hear about things like bone marrow transplant, you know, kind of what all the long-term treatment will entail, they may not be interested in that as much, especially because these therapies are not all necessarily home runs either. Yeah, yeah. What constant would you say for the patient who wants to be treated with curative intent? What are the phases of treatment? And then we'll, we'll sort of dive into them a little bit more. Sure. So, you know, I, I guess I'd first talk about a patient who is, you know, a candidate for more intensive treatment, if that's appropriate for their disease. For those patients, we talk about intensive induction chemotherapy, you know, which could be 7 plus 3. It could be plus another agent like mitostorin if they have a FLT3 mutation or mylotarg if they're core binding factor or CD33 positive, which is um, a CD33 antibody. Or it could be something like Vixios, which is for, um, you know, AML with MDS-related changes or, ther or secondary therapy-related AML. And so for those patients, that's typically going to be a therapy where they're going to be in the hospital for about four to six weeks, you know, receiving the therapy, but also being watched and monitored for the complications that can occur with those therapies. You're really trying to clean out the bone marrow, which you know, gets rid of, you know, your good cells or precursor cells and, and the bad. And then what you're hoping for is that just the good cells will grow and you won't see leukemia cells at the end of therapy. And so people have very low blood counts, they need transfusions, um, they have risk of infection, can have mouth sores, diarrhea, you know, issues from mucositis essentially. And so those are things that for most patients, we feel they need to be monitored in the hospital for the acuity of care that they may need. Do you have an age cutoff for intensive therapy, or how do you make that decision? And I, I guess, let me focus it even a little more. We we're talking about a 68-year-old. Is 68 old? How do you decide? Well, so that's a good question. I'm going to answer that two different ways. So 68 is not old, um, but when you look at as of right now, and prognostication for AML patients, 60 is typically the cutoff where we use younger versus older 
patients. And the reason that for that cutoff is we know that patients who are younger than 60 um, typically do better. Even if they have the same cytogenetic molecular profile, there's something about the disease that is typically more responsive to therapy and they have better outcomes as to someone who is older than 60. But when you're talking about making decisions of therapy, I think we really need to get away from just age as a strict criteria. There are different methods and ways to look at frailty assessments, kind of looking at someone's performance status, you know, instead of just kind of looking and making a guess of ECOG. But doing, kind of trying to incorporate that I think will be important to say, do we really think this person could benefit from intensive chemotherapy based off of their cytogenetic and molecular findings? And is it safe? Do we think they have a good chance of, of getting through it without, you know, significant morbidity or mortality? So I guess it's it's a gestalt. I mean, you've got some things to measure, but ultimately it's a clinical a clinical judgment. And and you're also saying too, a lot of it has to do with the patient's uh, goals of care. Exactly. So let me ask you for examples from your clinical experience. If we go back to the concept again of the 68 year old, you see this patient, you find in fact that they've got a uh, a FLT3 mutation. Uh, what's going through your mind in terms of the choices that you have to review with them? Sure. So, you know, the, the different options that I typically talk about with patients, so for this patient, for example, would be, you know, there is the option to do the 7 plus 3 plus mitostorin, which is a FLT3 inhibitor that was shown to have improved overall survival in the randomized phase 3 ratified study. So that's a potential option. Um, there's also, you know, less intensive therapy with um, hypomethylating agents. You could consider adding venetoclax, which is a BCL2 inhibitor. That's a newly approved agent for AML, and it appears that FLT3 may be more responsive to that. You know, that's a therapy that is less intensive and still seems to have pretty good remission rates. And then you also can talk about clinical trial. And so, you know, there are different trials that um, may have a FLT3 inhibitor up front or other targeted therapies. And then I also always mention to patients that they, you know, have the option to do supportive care or even hospice. And it really, as I mentioned before, is dependent on what the patient's goals are. And I always think it's important to just mention, you know, a lot of I feel like people shy away from hospice supportive care, but patients really need to know that all of the options. So, you know, you're not the one as a physician driving that you have to do treatment, especially if someone may not be interested in that. Absolutely. Um, it makes me think of Ash from just a few months ago. What was really exciting was the data on venetoclax. Can you go over that with me and with us? Sure. So there, I guess, are two different studies that I guess have recently been published. One is venetoclax with hypomethylating agents. Um, so it was venetoclax, which is a BCL2 inhibitor in combination with either decidabine for five days or vidaza for seven days. And so with single agent vidaza or decidabine, we typically would see complete remission rates of about you know, 20, 30, 40%, depending on, you know, the study you were looking at and the time to remission, what takes typically about three to four months. 
Um, and then the typical um, disease-free survival was about 10 to 12 months. But with the Netoclax, with the addition of that, and that really starts at the same time as you're starting the hypomethylating agent, you're seeing complete remission rates like CR and then what we call complete remission with incomplete count recovery. So combined rates of like 70%, which is wow. amazing. It is amazing. And then, yeah. And the other big thing is that patients are getting to responses faster. So instead of waiting three or four months, they were seeing a time to best response within one to two months, which you know, is also really great because that's less time of needing transfusion support, being neutropenic, risk of infections, you know, less doctor's visits sooner. So, and if they're transplant candidates, you could move forward with that sooner as well. So along those lines, is that finding with Venetoclax ready for prime time use in more generally, or what are your thoughts about how that will roll out? Oh, that's a great question. Well, what's been interesting is I think it's already actually been rolling out even before this has been fully published because Venetoclax has been, you know, FDA approved for CLL. And so I think that, you know, over this, especially past year, many people were using it off-label. And so I think it's going to continue to, you know, have more and more common use and really become the standard of care instead of just hypomethylating agents alone. But we still have the phase three studies that are ongoing comparing, you know, to hypomethylating alone versus a combination therapy. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with those studies as well as if we could figure out are there particular groups that may respond better versus others. All right, so along those lines, another exciting set of data was on hedgehog inhibitors, which have been used in skin cancer. Why might they work in AML? What is the hedgehog pathway for that matter? What were you excited about at the ASH meeting? Well, I guess to first talk about, I guess, Glastigib, which is the hedgehog inhibitor that was recently FDA approved. That was kind of a dark horse because a lot of us, um, I guess, in the, the leukemia community weren't as aware of this. It didn't have as much buzz as Venetoclax. And then, you know, all of a sudden we were hearing it was FDA approved. So it's been really interesting and exciting to go back and look at the data for that. But essentially, the hedgehog signaling pathway is really critical for leukemia stem cell survival and expansion. And so Glastigib targets a part of that pathway called smoothened, and so turns that off, essentially. And so, you know, using it combined with low-dose cytarabine, they saw in a randomized phase two trial that there were better complete remission rates and overall survival compared to low-dose cytarabine alone. And, you know, in the U.S., we don't use a lot of low-dose cytarabine anymore. It's not been really in fashion, I guess, with hypomethylating agents is what kind of our common thing has been for patients who are not candidates for intensive therapy. So seeing such an improvement from, you know, you had a 17% complete remission rate versus with the combination versus 1% with low-dose cytarabine. And so that's, that's a definite improvement, you know, and maybe something for patients who, if you're concerned, like they could not tolerate venetoclax plus a hypomethylating agent, or, you know, it, it's just another option for patients. 
So, all right. Something, again, one of our fellows uh, was asking me to, to pass on to you. What do you do if someone has two mutations that are actionable? So they have an IDH and they have a uh, FLT3. And I'm more interested in how you make the decision than what the specific decision might be. So that's a good question. So I think as we're learning more about the mutations, we really need to figure out what features are important. And so one of those is that varying a little frequency. And so we think that that may be important as far as identifying a driver mutation. So, you know, one that has a higher variant level frequency of 30 or 40%, we may want to target that before a lower variant level frequency because that's, um, you know, maybe just in a subclone. However, when you think about relapse disease, you worry too that that subclone may be what comes back and proliferates if you're missing targeting that. So it's not quite ready, I would say, for prime time and, and figuring that out. And I, I would say most people, it depends on what therapies are available. I would say, you know, if you have a, you know, relapsed AML um, and you have both a FLT3 and IDH mutation, you're really going to have to think about what are the goals for that patient. You know, with gelteritinib, you're going to have, you know, a chance of remission of about 40%, but it's going to be a short duration. But if someone needs to get to transplant, then that's not a bad route to go versus if someone had an IDH inhibitor, it can take, you know, four to five months to get into remission. But people who do respond to that, which is about a 40% overall response rate, those responses can be, you know, 18 to 20 months. And so it, it really just depends. I, again, I keep coming back to this, what the goals of the patient are, if you're trying to get into transplant, if it's more quality of life and whatnot. All right. So very, very exciting has been the, uh, the BEAT AML study. Can you tell us about it? And I'd love to, you know, get your assessment of what are the arms that you're, you know, maybe particularly excited about. Sure. The BDML is a study that's sponsored by the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And right now it is a study for older patients with AML, so those 60 or above who are newly diagnosed. And so in the future, we hope to add for younger patients or relapsed and refractory arms, but right now it's really just for upfront. And so the first part of the study really is when patients come in, they're diagnosed, we are trying to see if it's safe to wait for that molecular data to come back before starting treatment and if it can help us make a treatment decision to have a better outcome. So essentially patients get a bone marrow biopsy, the sample is sent um, for centralized testing for molecular studies with the goal turnaround time of seven days. And for what was reported at ASH, there had been about 285 patients and the turnaround time, we achieved that seven days in 95% of patients. And so without you know, major serious adverse events where it seems to be a safe thing to wait for most patients. And then once you have the results at return, patients go through an algorithm looking at mutations, cytogenetic changes, but those mutations, as I mentioned, we look at the barrier low frequency. And so those that are above 30%, they are assigned to an arm, a treatment arm through the algorithm. And if they don't have a mutation that are cytogenetic change that are within the algorithm, we'll go back through and look at a 20% barrier low frequency. And then for patients who are still not assigned, they go to a marker negative arm 
which means doesn't mean they don't have mutations, but right now those mutations are ones that we don't have targeted therapies for. But they, we still have a clinical trial for those patients with things like immunotherapy or you know, other, other ways to, to treat them that's new and innovative. What are some examples of the arms that are targeted? Sure. So um, some of the examples of the arms are for patients who have, say, an IDH2 mutation. They um, receive enacidinib, which is an IDH2 inhibitor. They receive that up front for up to five months. And then if they have not had a response by that time, then they have the addition of a hypomethylating agent added to their therapy. If they do have a response, then they stay on the single agent. Um, and they can go on to transplant or just stay on indefinitely if, if that's not an option for them or not a goal. All right, so a final question. Is AML a curable disease? And what are your hopes about where we'll be with long-term survival as, as you reach, you know, sort of the end of your career, which will be a, a long time from now, I hope? So I think my... What one of my goals or what I'd like to see for patients with AML is that we're getting away from chemotherapy. I think it would be fantastic if we had immunotherapy, CAR T-cell therapy, targeted therapeutics, novel, novel combinations, ways to get away from the toxicities of standard therapies that sometimes debilitate patients so much that they're not able to move forward um, with further treatment. They're not candidates for stem cell transplants. And I think, you know, that would give patients a better quality of life. And hopefully the goal, the ultimate goal would be have have better outcomes as such as overall survival and leukemia-free survival. Which I have to say brings us back to what we talked about early on, which is, uh, again, going back to goals of care and being able to provide highly effective therapy with oral meds, with meds that are outpatient. Geez, what a huge change that would be. So, Alice, I want to thank you very much. This has been an incredible uh, session, really exciting. And, again, thank you from me and from the LLS. Thank you. As mentioned on this episode, please visit the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society's website, www.lls.org beataml, for more information on the BeatAML Master Trial. For additional resources on acute leukemia, be sure to check out our website. Again, this is www.lls.org aml. And for a listing of our continuing education activities and healthcare professional resources, visit www.lls.org ce. And for any questions on how to refer a patient, please contact our Information Resource Center by calling 800-955-4572. Information Resource Specialists provide personalized one-on-one support to help patients learn about their disease, treatment, financial, and other support resources. That is an incredible resource uh, for patients and for professionals, too. So, again, this is Dr. Ken Miller, and from the LLS, I want to thank you for uh, Thanks for listening. for listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We can be found on iTunes and other podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.treatingbloodcancers.org and provide your suggestions for future topics. Visit our archive section on our website for other great podcasts. 
Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and on Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And access our professional continuing education activities by visiting lls.org CE. Let's keep the conversation going. Until next time.